Welcome to We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. I'm your host, Lauren Lee, and I'm all about building communities, celebrating unique journeys, and sharing stories about the paths people have taken to enter the tech industry. Join me as we explore the skills my guests have learned in their prior jobs, schooling, or life experiences, and how they apply them to their current roles in tech. And in today's episode, be sure to listen until the end, as I've got a giveaway happening and you won't want to miss it. My guest today has been creating handcrafted experiences on the web his entire career. His experience spans from large content-driven news sites to boutique designs for small to medium businesses. He's currently making a living as a free agent developer advocate for technologies he's passionate about via his startup company, Code Contemporary. In the past, he's led agency design and development teams, been a front-end developer, and a UX strategist. He hosts the That's My Jam Stack podcasts, streams live coding on Twitch, designs daily, and runs multiple developer groups in his hometown of Memphis. His name is Brian Robinson. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be talking to you today. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning, shall we? Sure. Okay, so can you tell me more about the experiences that you had before you entered the tech industry? Sure. So I kind of lucked out in that pretty soon after college, I found my way into the tech industry, but I definitely never planned on being there. Um, Oh. I I, kind of played around with tech like as a teenager and like in junior high and that sort of thing. But I went to school, actually. I started uh, school to do recording industry things. So like be like a producer or a mixer and then quickly found out that completely wasn't for me and quickly found out via an intro to philosophy class that I love philosophy. And so I got a degree in philosophy. In philosophy. Um, which, yeah. Like, and, and to this day, my mother at the time, actually, she said, oh, you need some more hours your first semester. Why not take intro to philosophy? You love thinking. You love talking. Uh, and <laughs> it kind of stuck. And she was right. I, I do love that sort of thing. So uh, I got a degree in philosophy, but I also, I almost double majored. I wanted to get out of college by that point, but I almost double majored in journalism. Uh, and at the time, I was also working for a uh, mid-sized major newspaper in Tennessee called The Tennessean. It's a Nashville-based newspaper. And so I kind of got my career started doing copy editing. So I oh. uh, I was not actually in tech. I was doing anything but really kind of old school stuff, newspaper stuff. So a lot of fun. Right. Interesting. And so what were you drawn to in philosophy? You said you love thinking or kind of that, those big questions, but what in particular lit the fire for you? Sure. So in the end, a lot of people consider philosophy to be kind of a useless degree unless you're going to like teach college. And what mm-hmm. drew me to it was actually the most u- useless pieces of it. Right. <laughs> so I, I love thinking about like existence. I love thinking about, I, I actually had a concentration in aesthetics so I like thinking about what is the nature of art and what is the nature of beauty? Things that really don't matter in any way, mm-hmm. shape or form other than like growth and understanding of the world. It really kind of did it for me. I really enjoyed thinking about that sort of thing. I like talking about it. I was never, yeah. I don't really like writing papers, but I enjoyed sitting outside the collegiate philosophy department building, having conversations with my classmates. All the professors were super nice and would actually like go outside of class and talk to all the students about all these things. Uh, and so like, 
it was it was a great experience and i i don't know i just like having discourse i like talking to people that's always been kind sure. of what drew me to that area it sounds like a really positive educational experience too mm-hmm. and so and yeah it sounds like you fostered a lot of curiosities that you had at that time as well exactly and so you were always tinkering you said as a kid though with tech so how did you yeah. eventually decide to transition and maybe learn to code and how exactly did you get into it So it might shock you to learn that a person that gets a degree in philosophy has strong opinions about things. Um, (laughs) But I've got pretty strong opinions and newspapers at the time, this would have been early 2000s. So 2004, 2005, maybe 2006, 2007 is when I really got into the news industry. And that's like right at the beginning of the end of the newspaper industry, right as revenues were crashing and all this kind of stuff. And they ignored the web for a long time. And I was working as a, as a copy editor on the sports desk at the Tennessean. And I, I we had this uh, entertainment publication. I was like, we could be doing so much more online, not having oh any gosh, clue how yeah. any of it worked really. But the vision of it, like, come on, let's stay up with this. Like, let, we can't let it die. Yeah, sure. 100%. Like, like, how can we engage online in a better way? So I wrote this, like, again, having a degree in philosophy, I wrote this little discourse, like two page <laughs> thing, uh, submitted it. I, show, I actually showed it to my boss at the time. He was like, oh yeah, this is great. Like, Send it over. So I sent it to our online editor and like they moved me into the online department. They uh oh, wow. as a con- as a content producer. So I was still doing mostly editing, uh, doing like p- I posted the newspaper contents to the web every night and adjusted it for you know our CMS and that sort of thing, which you know, back in 06, 07, we're still kind of finding our way in big content management land. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, of course. And so we I, I did that for a little while, ended up getting a, that was technically all that was like part time. I was working like 35 hours a week doing the, mm. the editing stuff, but also later on with the online department. And then I got a, a job offer for the Memphis paper. Memphis is where I where I grew up and uh, basically went full time online stuff and learned more and more the front end stuff. In fact, like the first time my first big project at the commercial appeal, the, the paper in Memphis was to convert our blog, our set of blogs from movable type blogs, uh, which is Mm. super old school blogging platform uh, to WordPress. And I had no idea what I was doing. Like I'd been doing like some minor tweaking of HTML and CSS uh, at the Tennessean. (laughs) Sure. And so I dive in and like, I know table-based layout at the time. And I know a little (laughs) bit about CSS and I mix the two together in like the worst possible way. Uh, and I, oh I passed gosh. it off. To, yeah, I passed it off to our creative director, and he was like, "Oh, I actually had this like little teeny tiny question. I couldn't get something to align like quite right from the design." <laughs> and I'm like, "Can you can you take a look at this and let me know where I'm going wrong?" And he's like, "I have no clue what you've done. Like, I, this is yeah. what." And so like, I was like, "Okay, I need to I need to do some learning." And so yeah. <laughs> I dove deeper yeah. into it. And as happens in the news industry. We had many rounds of layoffs that happened, even in the online department, and they, mm-hmm. they actually got rid of the entire content team for the online department. But because I had spent so much time learning the coding aspects of what we did, I was one of the people that got kept. And my okay. role switched from no more content, the newsroom took over all the content, and it switched over to being full-time site production, working in HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and it kind of blossomed from there, grew from there quite okay. a bit. So on-the-job learning was happening in that moment. 100%. I mean, I had some background in junior high. I made some you know, simple HTML stuff. This is like 90s HTML. Uh, sure. I played a, a MUD, a multi-user dungeon, which is, yep. for, the, for the kids in the audience, the, the <laughs> precursor to MMOs. 
Uh, it was a text-based multiplayer game online. And yeah. I did a little bit of code work there. I learned how to manipulate a Linux command line, although I had no clue I was doing that at the time. What you uh, were, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, like so, so somebody's teaching me like terminal like in 2010. I'm like, oh, I know these commands. I did it with, wait, oh wait, maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> That's so funny. And so while you're working on that job and then having to kind of up your HTML, CSS game, how mm -hmm. were you, were you teaching yourself or how were you learning it? So I had a, for, for the first little bit of that, I had a really good mentor, uh, oh, the guy who was writing the majority of the code for the local, for the paper I was at. We had a, a, okay. a corporate set of developers and designers and they gave us most mm. everything, but we had okay. control over some areas. And so like, I had no clue what I was doing. I would ask him a bunch of questions and about six months later, maybe 10 months later, he left, he got a new job. He moved to another city. And so at that point I had learned enough through him that I actually realized he was then holding me back. Cause if I had a question, I would ask him after yeah. like one or two minutes instead right. of trying to find the answer myself. The art of how to struggle through a question and knowing when the right time to ask for help. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And and also like, I never had to learn how to Google at that point. I mean, you know, that was when <laughs> sure. like Stack Overflow was just becoming a thing and all that. Yeah. And so like, I, at that point knew just enough to know what to search for. Uh, and so there's lots of copying and pasting, lots of reading. But at that point, I also said, JavaScript is hideous. I will never learn how to use JavaScript whatsoever. And I consider myself more a designer who codes than a developer. And okay. so like now I do a lot of JavaScript because obviously it's eaten most of our industry for front-end development. But mm -hmm. at the time I said, I'll never learn this. I have no clue what's going on in this. I'll copy and paste some jQuery and I'll be good enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> I got thrown in the deep end with that again and, and figured my way out and it, I like it well enough now. I still, I love CSS. CSS is always going to be closest to my heart, but I, I, I get around JavaScript pretty well nowadays after after over a decade in the industry. You've decided to, or learn to appreciate it, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. It's like a love-hate relationship, it sounds like. Oh, oh, always is. <laughs> always. Okay, so then bring us to today. You've had a lot of things in between, but can you tell me more about what you do at Code Contemporary as a free agent developer advocate, <laughs> as you say? Sure. So I... I love education. It's a little bit in my blood. My mother was a high school teacher for as long as she was working. And I just, I like in high school, I tutored people in like calculus and pre-cal. In college, obviously I got a degree in philosophy, so I love learning. Um, mm. And so I like the idea that, and again, it's kind of like the, the purpose of this podcast, right? Like there are people that can come to technology without a computer science degree. And I want to be able to help them. I want to be able to teach mm. them the things that I care about. And so I, I mostly do a lot of writing. I do some video courses, uh, active in a lot of communities. I make little tools all for the purpose of like educating people about, again, the things I care about. So it's uh, CSS. I do a lot of CSS work, especially since CSS has become amazing in the past five years. Uh, yeah. Simple JavaScript, making JavaScript a little bit more accessible to design types like myself. Uh, and then static sites. I love the Jamstack. I love I love the idea that we can ship HTML and have HTML downloaded incredibly quickly from a server with no database attachment. So it can be super, super quick. And granted, I spent six years at an agency where we had a proprietary PHP CMS. 
So I don't <laughs> mind server-side stuff, but like just the ability to ship HTML without making a database query is amazing to me. That's really cool. So, I mean, maybe I jumped too far ahead. What <laughs> happened after the newspaper Sure. and that role where you were learning it? So I, I was at that, that, that newspaper in Memphis and we actually got a, a new CMS, a Django-based CMS. And I, I adore Django and I love their templating engine. Uh, I don't use it anymore because I've got static site generators that function in such similar ways to the templates that mm -hmm. I don't have to. But uh, we got that and I learned the ins and outs of, of that template engine. This is a Jinja 2 template engine and it's, it's, a great, it's a great way to write HTML. I love it. And so the corporate end of the newspaper at the time was hiring. And so they ended up uh, hiring me to come in and work on that, work on those templates, work on, that was actually where I got thrown into the deep end of JavaScript. They said, look, you're great with CSS. You understand our template structure. Cause we had this whole, it was a corporate, corporate structure that had like 13 newspaper websites, all sharing global templates that then were overridden a little bit at the local level. And it was, it was a pretty complex system. And I understood the local aspect of it. And so they brought me in, but they were also losing their main JavaScript person. And so I had to learn that. Even though there was, you know, there were other people that knew JavaScript, he was their main person for that at the time. Right. And so like I, I learned a lot in that role. I spent about two years doing that. I was technically a user experience specialist, even though we were all generalists and even though I was a front-end developer. But as I mentioned before, the news industry, especially the newspaper industry, is not exactly a booming industry. And so at the time they actually had their broadcast side, their broadcast news side, take over the newspaper side. And they wanted to move everyone under a consolidated hosted CMS solution. And they laid off literally the like 20 person team uh, that were designers, developers, back end and front end for the entire like newspaper group. And so I, I harbored no super ill will. They gave me a great severance package and I lined up my next job while still working. And like, it was, it was a super positive experience phasing out there. But I was I was in Knoxville at the time because that's where they were based. And uh, my wife got a job back in Memphis. So we came back over. I was just looking for work. And I found this really cool niche agency called Rocket Fuel in Memphis. Uh, super geeky, super cool people. Uh, and they didn't have any user experience people. And I'd gotten some experience with that. And so they brought right. me on to do that. And by the end of my six-year run there, I was also managing their design development teams because I kind of oh. just, again, that constant learning that I was going for uh, and like always being the person that could fill a need wherever, whenever, even if it was something I'd never done before. Sure. Like I'd never managed Linux uh, Linux servers. Our CTO uh, was making a change and left. And so that's when they promoted me to, to not just oversee the design team, but also the development team. And I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I can make this work. I'm going to talk to Rackspace a lot. Like I spent hours and hours on the phone <laughs> with, with Rackspace and they were amazing. And I learned so much just from talking to them. But like, you know, again, always, always on that, that quest for more knowledge, that philosophy background calling me to learn a little bit more. Yeah. I love that you say yes to opportunities though, that you see a hole yeah. and you think, oh, I'm going to figure out how I can fill it and yep. learn in the moment to figure out what I don't know yet and say yep. yes to that opportunity though. I yeah. I even that. almost, uh, almost deviated from tech, uh, in, in the news industry too. I was like, oh, we're starting up this video thing. I love video. I actually got a minor in film studies. And I did some video right. work and luckily I didn't go fully into the video staff because uh, I wouldn't be where I am today, which I, I quite enjoy. But uh, yeah, I spent like six months learning Adobe Premiere and I use that skill now uh, to do all of my, my video work for, for my courses. So uh, I don't know, sure. like everything that you can learn helps you somewhere down the path. Absolutely. You won't be upset about having learned it. 
Exactly. And so then how did you, I guess, maybe decide to go off on your own and start up Code Contemporary? Sure. So, I mean, in the end, I loved working at the agency. It was an amazing place to work. I loved the owners. They're still great friends of mine. But agency work is a drain. Like it can really drain you. And I spent six, almost six and a half years doing that. And I was one of the go-to people for talking to clients a lot of the times. Uh, I was our, you know, our tech savvy person. And like, I enjoyed that. Don't get me wrong. Because again, like philosophy degree, having conversations. I love that sort of thing. But it's very, very tiring, especially when like, we, we had a, a phrase that was let the Wookiee win. And I would always, I, I came to client work from a perspective of if the client wants something that I know is against best practices, I'm going to mm-hmm. give my full throated opinion and give them every piece of data I can to back up why I'm right. Because again, <laughs> strong opinions. Um, yeah. <laughs> and if that doesn't convince them, it is at the end of the day, their website or their product, I'm going to let them win at that point after I've given them my all to convince them that I'm giving them the right information. Uh, and so like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's, there's really also only so many times you can let the Wookiee win at that point. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was just, I was a little burnt out on it, on client work, agency work. And again, I, I wanted to be teaching. I'd been getting some traction on the little bit of writing I'd been doing. I, I had some blog posts that were doing very well on Google. And it was just kind of the right time to try to see if I could make an educational business work out. And I knew that, you know, there, there are huge names in the industry that, that do it and make a good living off of, off of it. Like, you know, a, a, the West bosses of the world that I know are making serious bank doing educational stuff. So I was like, let me give it a shot. Let me see if I can do this again about the things that I'm passionate about. So it was right. the right time kind of to, to try it on my own and then go from there. Sounds like you're happy that you did. For the, for, for the most part, it can still be, uh, <laughs> it can still be tough, but I, I enjoy what I do for the most part. Yeah, I'm sure kind of deciding where to spend time and energy can be tough as well. But that's with everything. Exactly. Especially especially like any sort of solo entrepreneur kind of thing, like knowing what to spend your time on can be that 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 in itself is a job. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think it's cool that you have such an educational lens. I can really appreciate that. I myself was a high school English teacher and it's oh, just nice. it's neat to hear that you have that kind of at the forefront of where you're coming from with what you're putting yeah. out there and kind of thinking about different modalities of learning. It sounds like you're dipping your toe into all different types of styles of learners. So oh, yeah. I imagine that people really appreciate that for sure. I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, right. That's that's the goal. But it sounds like you're being very metacognitive about it. Yeah, doing my best. So what would you say maybe kept you from entering the tech industry before you did? I, I think and I'm kind of passionate about this and I'll, I'll see if a soapbox happens or not now, but like the, the idea that like, I wasn't, I mean, I've, I've always been a nerd, right? I've always been a geek. I've always been like, I'm a star Wars buff. I've got all these things going for me that you'd think I would be a perfect fit into like a tech group of some sort. And like, I don't know, I just always looked at it and I said, I know computers well enough. Like I, I got my first laptop right before going to college. And I was always on are really old school computers when I was a ki- when I was a kid. I was also a, a Mac guy as a, as a kid as opposed to a PC person, and mm. so like even that was like I don't actually know the inner workings of computers. I'll never be able to do technology. Like it, it never yeah. even occurred to me that that was a, a career path. Like I loved music, so I was like I'll do recording industry. I love you know journalism. Again, that's in my blood. My my father was in journalism, mm-hmm. and so like I loved these things, but I never thought of it as technology can augment those things. I always thought of it as an either or when in reality, any position, any career can be benefited by knowing more about technology, even if you don't end up becoming a developer. Like I've got a good friend in the Memphis area that is an audiologist, but he comes to all of our developer meetups 
and he's like in the PHP group. He's in the, the front end group that I run. And like he uses his skills as a developer to make his life easier as an audiologist. So he didn't like the tool he had for like recording some of the data he was doing. So he made his own little React app to do it quicker. And like, I don't think that there are a lot of people out there, especially today, less so like, again, I'm a product of the 90s. I came up with a computer, but like a hard, like a hard to use computer. So like I had to learn technology to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think because it's so easy nowadays, I don't think there are a lot of people who have to dig too hard. And I'm a big believer in like the internet is a place for producers as well as consumers. And we should be producers as much as we are consumers on the web. And mm-hmm. I didn't think in that way before I even, before I started really playing with more modern technology, like playing with, I use like Microsoft front page back in the nineties. That was like a fun little hobby as a kid. You can have this be a DIY hobby as an adult. And I never would have thought about that except for I had to become that via journalism and kind of my path into it. I hear that. It's interesting. I, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this, but how, how has your past in journalism and philosophy helped you today in your role at your startup and being a developer advocate? Sure. So in the end, I'm a big, big, big believer in liberal arts education. Mm. I, I believe that philosophy grounded me in so many different ways that it's actually an incredibly valuable degree, especially as we kind of see that degrees mean a little less nowadays. Like there's mm-hmm. so many developers out there that don't have a computer science degree. Yeah, I actually like our CTO at the agency I worked at, did, he, he dropped out of college after his first year. He, he decided that was not for him uh, and he was a great programmer. And, uh, and so like, if you're going to go to school I always worry about like the vocational path that universities even are taking and mm-hmm. kind of neglecting the the liberal arts because philosophy grounded me in ethics. So I think about basically every choice I make, am I going to hurt somebody? And I don't want to yeah. do that. Let me make sure that whatever I'm releasing, whatever I'm talking about is the best for everyone, but also gave me kind of a whole lot of different mental models to pick from. So I've done a lot of user experience work. I can place my my head into a persona's head much more quick because I had to learn all these drastically different life philosophies over the, you know, the course of, you know, two millennia, right? Like of the various right. people that I studied. And so that really helped me get into the mindset of really anyone I need to uh, as I kind of go through it, but also like questioning and education. So like as a developer, we're on a constant learning path. And philosophy mm-hmm. taught me how to ask questions, how to mm-hmm. learn, also how to think critically, which was super important, especially as the programmer side of things. Because like you don't have to be good at math to be a developer, but you do have to be pretty decent at logical thinking. And you can learn <laughs> logical thinking. You don't have to be born with it. And I took two logic classes in college and kind of cemented that in my brain. Nice. Well, it sounds like it's really helped you gain perspective and Mm -hmm. other points of view, but also be really empathetic too to your user and to think about where they're coming from and their journey. I really, really hope so. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like (laughs) that's always, that's my my end all goal is to make sure that I'm always looking out for the end user. And I I give like design presentations and stuff for developers and and I'm always saying, and and I'm actually going to say this, I've never actually said it publicly before. So we'll see uh, if people, if people are listening, if they come at me on Twitter, we'll see. User experience, I like to say, is um, extreme empathy and advanced common sense. So, like, you can be, you can go get a master's in human computer interaction. And if you are interested in that, like, I highly recommend it. A couple of my friends, a couple of my old co workers had masters in HCI and they knew so much. They knew all sorts of methodologies and all that. But mm. if you can put your head 
actually in the space of your users and know in depth about as many of your users as you can, you can mm. use common sense at that point to think through the user flows. Now, you have to be like completely open about it. You can't think, oh, you know, I'm a person that's on a high-end MacBook Pro that is doing X, Y, and Z and knows everything about computers. <laughs> you can't do that. that. You can't use your common sense. You have to use their common sense. And that's why it's advanced common sense and extreme empathy. You have to really put yourself in their shoes as much as possible. I don't, I don't think it's that controversial. I mean, I think that makes <laughs> a lot of sense to me. It's intuitive in a way, actually, just flipping it on its head a bit. Well, there's always there's always hot drama on Twitter. Like uh, Jared Spool, a great user experience person, uh, said, you know, made the, the comment, uh, "Everyone is a designer, and design Twitter flipped their lid." So you never know. You never know what people are going to say. <laughs> They'll come for us this week. Okay. <laughs> well, would you say that that empathy and that ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about all these different patterns of society, mm -hmm. has that differentiated you from folks that you've worked with who maybe have taken a more traditional route to tech? I, th I think, I think absolutely, especially so, especially in like my agency life. Now my educational yeah. side, like other aspects have definitely helped me along that, but like working with clients is incredibly hard. It is not a natural ability for most people. And even like, I, I, again, I love talking to people. I love learning about stuff. I love asking questions of people, but I was not natural at it when I started. I, I ran alongside our, our, um, our president for a while, like doing client meetings but it's, it all kind of boils down to being able to ask the right question and find the root cause. And I think that's a big thing that we talk about in development a lot is finding the root cause. Like why, yeah. why is the client or the stakeholder having this issue? Mm -hmm. Why do they, instead of like them coming to you and saying, I want this to be blue and you saying, <laughs> yes, it'll be blue. No problem. You mm -hmm. think why, what, what is the root cause? And it might be, I can't read this as easily as I should. So we have accessibility concerns or I just like the color blue or our brand needs to feel this specific way. And then you can more accurately portray whatever that is, whether it's a color change, a font change, a huge feature change that you need to rework an entire user flow, all of that mm -hmm. kind of, you have to ask the right question and you have to ask a lot of questions and not be afraid to ask the questions. And like, I learned a lot of empathy and philosophy, but I also learned how to not worry so much about looking stupid because most of my classmates were like, I'm a relatively smart guy, but like most of them were going on to get doctorates. Most of them were going on to like ask big questions. And I probably never was going to do that. Like, even if I hadn't found technology, I was not going to probably go get a, a master's or, or teach college for philosophy. Uh, mm -hmm. And so like knowing that, I can ask questions, even if they may sound stupid in my head, I think is a huge differentiator as well. Yeah. To let go of your ego is a big thing. I, I'm mm -hmm. impressed by that because you honestly, you don't find that a ton in tech. It's not an easy thing. Like some days it's still not easy for me, but uh, I, I do my best. And especially, especially when I'm trying to learn, you, you can't hold on to your ego. You just have to ask. Well, it's cool that you're cognizant at the very least and that mm -hmm. it's a practice that you think about. Yeah. To have that on the forefront of your mind is pretty woke in itself, I'd say. So yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So can you share any life lessons you've learned from your transition to tech? My big thing, and it might not be, this might not be the right demographic, right? This The, the podcast may be going out to plenty of people who are already in tech, but my big thing <laughs> is that like literally anyone can transition into tech. And, and I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, 
it worries me a little bit that society as a whole sees the web specifically, but technology more generally as kind of a, a closed box that yeah. no one except for like really techie people can get into. And I actually, not to, not to get on like a soapbox, but I have a, a presentation uh, called uh, the DIY web and kind of like, it talks about where we were in the nineties and what we've lost along the way. And it's, it's, it came to me and why I want to talk about it from loving bookstores. And like, I've got a four-year-old son and, and back, you know, before pandemic times and all that, we would like every Saturday go to story time. And that was like one of our special things we'd get to do. Yeah. I'd get coffee, we'd eat a pastry, and then we listen to a story. But I, I adore bookstores. I love being in there. I'd sometimes go there to work. But I'd also go look at the tech books and like try to get inspiration for like other things I needed to teach. And I would go to find where they were. And every bookstore I've ever been in, and I could I could be missing bookstores. So, you know, leave a comment, send me a tweet, whatever, to let me know where they are in yours. But tech books are always, always, always by the business books. Mm. I've never run across a bookstore where tech books are not by business. And a lot of people don't think critically about that. But again, degree in philosophy, I can't help myself. Yeah. There's actually a theory in linguistics called linguistic relativism. And linguistic relativism at its core has kind of been debunked. It says that the language, language that a person uses directly affects the way their brain works. So if you don't have a, a word for the color blue in your language, you may not be able to see blue. And huh. overall, over the course of the past few decades, it's been disproven at that kind of core, like making neuro, you know neurological connections level. But okay. most lingu linguists will say that a lower end version of that is obviously true. And it is that if you are using certain types of words regularly in your language, you're able to more quickly associate those words in uh, your thoughts. So, so there, there, there have been a couple studies, uh, and you can look them up. They're called the Russian Blues. It's not about people in Russia being sad. It's about colors in Russia and the fact that there are in Russia two primary words for two distinct blues, a light blue and a dark blue. So whereas in English and a lot of other languages, we have adjective and then color word, light blue, dark blue. In Russian, these two blues, and I, uh, one's Sinoy and one's Goloboy, I think. And again, no clue how to pronounce them. Do not speak Russian. <laughs> but they've done studies. They, one study was from a little over a decade ago. I can, I can send you some links. We can put them in the show notes. Um, Perfect. But one basically said they tested the ability to see differences between colors. And so they tested light green versus dark green. They tested a Sinoy blue and a Galaboy blue. And they tested some other control. And people struggled to see the differences between the same distance of darkness in the green example. And they were able to completely pinpoint them as different in the blue example. So because they had distinct mm -hmm. words in their language for these two shades of blue, they could more yeah. easily differentiate between them, even though the distance between those colors was exactly the same as the distance between the greens. And even if they put two dark blues together at the same distance. So if they put two Galaboys together, again, butchering that that word um, <laughs> they put two of those dark blues together people couldn't differentiate between those as easily as they could even closer colors in sinoy versus Galaboy. so that was an interesting thing and then they also went further another group did a study in 2016 2018 i can't remember uh, where they decided to take color out of it completely they still used color but they had people identify shapes so they yeah. had a background circle 
and then shapes flashing on the inside. And they use the shades of blue, shades of green, and shades of gray to see if people could identify a triangle and hit a button when they saw a triangle. And as it turns out, they were much easier to identify between Sinoing and Galaboy than they were between the greens, uh, just based on the fact they had these two words. So like, that's a long-winded way, way to say that if we put tech books by business, we will always associate technology and the only thing we can use technology for is business. And so if you're not learning- There's a link between them. We correlate exactly. them. And don't get me wrong. We make a living as developers. We make money and oftentimes good money because technology is a business. But if you want to go learn carpentry from a bookstore, you go to the DIY arts and crafts section. Mm. You want to learn sewing, you go to arts and crafts DIY, but you can make a big business out of carpentry. You can be a contractor. You can build all sorts of amazing things, but we don't put that by business. We put it by arts and crafts. And so to me, that says anyone can get into carpentry. Anyone can get into sewing. You can then take those skills and make money. But I think it's really important that people know that they can learn technology, even if they don't have to become a developer, they can learn the basics of the internet and be on the lookout for how websites work easier by learning about HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and maybe a little bit more. And they can do it as a DIY hobby, as opposed to like, I have to make the next big startup and make, you know, $50 million. <laughs> and I think that's a disconnect in our current society, whereas the, the 90s was very, very different. The 90s was everyone was a hobbyist. Everyone was using the internet to either share their passion or share their research. And so it's it's a little bit different now. And I, I kind of bemoan the fact that we're missing out on this kind of DIY culture outside of tech. There's plenty of DIYers in tech that are hobbyist developers on the side while still being a developer in their day job. And I just wanna make sure that there are more people in the world that bring their perspective to tech, even if they're never going to be a developer. And I don't I, I worry that they're not doing that right now. Right, because we'll always benefit from those other perspectives and new points of views that people can bring, or it's just a new way to problem solve or approach a problem, maybe. 100%. Every single time that you bring a new point of view into your world, it's always going to clarify something for you. Whether it's a good point of view or a bad one, you're still going to clarify something about what you believe every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember an old manager, uh, one of my first developer roles, he said, gosh, like we would not ever thought about the why so much since you've joined. Like <laughs> just why we're doing even things that we just take it for granted because everyone on my team had been there for a long while also, plus mm -hmm. their CS degree. And, yep. you know, I just wanted to be learning too, but also yeah. it was coming from a boot camp and was super curious, but it, yeah, I think there was something helpful there. Yeah. That's definitely a goal of this project itself is to make sure that people feel supported in the effort to transition mm -hmm. because, you know, I promise that we will benefit as a tech community the mm -hmm. more people come in from those different paths. And I'll 100% say this, if, if you are listening and you are just coming into the tech industry and you are just learning all these skills, it's a lot, it's very overwhelming, <laughs> but one of the best things you can do to learn is to also teach. So even if it is going and teaching a parent, going and teaching a friend that's not in technology, how to write an HTML web page and put it on a server or, or just open it in their browser, you might see their eyes light up that they can write something very simply and very declaratively and then see it in this application that has always ever been about consuming things. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm a big believer, like the nineties were all about like fan sites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why not make a fan site? Why not teach them how to, there's a, a show that just, that just ended the good place. I love the good place. Like yeah. make a, a, the good place fan site and like yeah. just 
show them how with simple HTML, they can do that. And then with some simple CSS, once they've learned that, like do something else with it. I don't know, there's something great about writing just a little bit of stuff, opening it in a browser and magically you're a web developer. Mm -hmm. And then you solidify your knowledge as you know, somebody who's learning tech by teaching a concept. You're, there's, there's nothing that you can do to pre prepare you for the questions they're going to ask because they're coming from a completely different background. So they ask you some <laughs> off the wall question. You're like, really? Yeah. How does SSH work? Or, oh, really? How does the actual HTTP protocol work? I have no clue. And you go research right. it. Yeah. Yeah. By teaching, we learn for sure. Yep. Ah, that's so true. Okay. So let's see. Can you tell me about a time that you felt like an outsider and how you've dealt with that feeling? Every single day of my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so a, a big thing for me is that imposter syndrome is a very real thing. And mm -hmm. every single person that I've ever met in the tech industry has it to a degree. So yeah. I, I like nothing better than when I look at something that, that I've learned recently and look mm -hmm. back to how I was just a, a year or two ago and think I've come a long way, but there's always something else that comes along that I'm like, I have no clue. So I just finished writing a post that hopefully will be published in the next couple of weeks for a, for a decent size uh, publication. And it was on a technology that I've only kind of used a little bit. It's still using like <laughs> JavaScript. It's still using all sorts of stuff that I know, but yeah. I came up with some demos for the article that I thought were going to be super easy to knock out. No problem whatsoever. You know, I'll knock the demos out in a couple hours, write the article in a couple hours and I'll be done with it. It took me two weeks. Now, granted, they were pandemic weeks and I have a four-year-old. So like... What is time? <laughs> exactly. But like, I wanted to throw my laptop out the window a couple different times. And I thought to myself, why am I teaching people? I have no clue what I'm doing. It's not true. Like, I know what I'm doing. But like, about this one little thing, it was, I just, it was beyond me. And then by the end of it, I'd ask a couple questions of a few people. I'd kind of look dumb to a couple people. Luckily, I have some friends that can, that can, look look away from some of the things that I feel wrong about. And I was able to learn a lot. Like it was all about databases and I'm not a database guy whatsoever. Like that is not my core skill set. But I know so much more now about authentication, tokenization of things, like all these things that I never had to worry about because it's not been my focus. Like I've dealt with them on the edges of what I do, but never dive deep into it. For two weeks, it was super frustrating. But at the end, I had that that endorphin rush of finally getting a new skill, getting something new that I can now apply somewhere else. Because I consider myself a designer who codes, I always feel slightly at odds with where I'm at, even though yeah. I'm not a particularly great designer and I'm not a particularly great developer. And like my, my superpower is that space in between. Not having that place, not saying I am a great JavaScript developer and I handle data like a master. No, I, I kind of know what I'm doing. Uh, I always feel like I'm missing something. Uh, and it feels much better now than it did when I was at the Commercial Appeal years and years ago when my first mentor left me, right? When he moved on, that was like, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm doing. Now it's like, I know how to figure it out. So if you're feeling like you don't know what you're doing and you don't have a place in tech, know that it might not be easy but you'll figure out something and that next something is how you get to the something after that. Definitely. Do you have any advice for those wanting to transition into tech that you can share? Build, 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 build. Even if it's something completely inane, even if it is just an HTML web page that is text about something that you're passionate about, do it. Mm -hmm. Or if you're a little bit beyond that, right? If you if you've gotten some some small mastery over a few things, 
build yourself something that you would find useful or write something that you will use. It doesn't have to be the best thing ever. And you will, you know, probably never for the first five, 10 years be as good as somebody who is, who is working on the next big thing, but you don't get there without going through these building phases. So it's either build something for yourself, find some small businesses that need some web help or need some application help. I, I always talk in terms of web. I know that like technology is bigger than that. Find an organization that maybe can pay you a little bit of money, but can't afford a full-on agency or a full-on developer and like get paid. Cause I think that's important too. Cause once you start offering your services for free, it's hard to pull that back, mm -hmm. but you are a lower, a lower skill level, but you can still build something. And having that client relationship is super important too. finding out their needs, figuring out how to fix what they've, what they've broken. Cause they will break stuff every single time. Just getting that practical experience. You can't beat it. And you, you can't do that just adjusting something in like a new Gatsby site or a WordPress blog. That's all good and it's important skills to have, but like build something for yourself or build something for someone else and then build the next thing and then build the next thing because that's how you learn. You learn by by the practicum, by the application. Build it and then teach it too. Exactly. And, and I, I can't stress this enough. Having your own blog and writing for your future self is the best way to A, cement the learning in your mind and potentially that becomes a resume because if you don't have any practical experience and you're looking for a job that says junior but still wants three years of experience, yes. you can at least point to the things that you've learned and, and show that you've written about them. And that shows communication skills, which employers are looking for. It shows critical thinking. It shows that you can research things. It shows that you can build things all in one simple thing. Plus, the more you do that, the more SEO you get and the bigger your presence gets. It's easier to get a job at that point when you have a bigger presence. And mm -hmm. plus six months down the road, you'll forget what you learned anyway and you can go back and read your own blog post. It's a good documentation of your learning for sure. Exactly. I'm actually giving a talk tomorrow about blog writing and the art of technical mm -hmm. writing, but also just like if you've built something, you can write about it. And yeah, there's <laughs> benefits of helping your community, but also just like personally, you know, your name is out there then. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's just really important things for when you're early in that path, you know, post it to Dev2 or Medium anywhere yeah. and just, yeah, get your name out there. And you, and you can always go get that content back and put it on your own thing later on. Like, don't, don't think you have to build your own blog out of the box. Although I'm a proponent of having your own blog and like syndicating elsewhere, you can post it wherever yeah, and then come back and get it later on, especially with like Dev2. I much prefer seeing people writing on Dev2 than on Medium, but anywhere, just post it to the web. And to begin with, no one's going to see it. So just know that it doesn't matter what you write, just write. If it's terrible, no one reads it. If it's great, no one reads it. And then eventually somebody will read it. <laughs> so true. Okay. Brian, make your shout out. What would you like listeners to go check out? So uh, I did mention that I make my living doing educational resources. So I want to mention a couple quick things. First mm -hmm. and foremost, uh, I do a lot of video work on YouTube and some uh, some live code streaming on Twitch. Uh, so I'll provide those links and come visit me on one of those platforms. Awesome. Uh, but I also have a CSS grid course and uh, I'll make sure that I, that I provide a coupon code that you can put in the show notes and people can get 50% off that. It's all you need to know about CSS grid in about two hours. And it's all in practical examples that you could literally put into a project today with copy and paste and figure out what's going on with it. So I'm a big believer in like practical things, not just like yeah. boxes on a page. And so that's what this course is all about. It's my, it's my main course that I kind of put out into the world because I think grid is 
the best thing that's come to the web in a decade. So that that's that's that as well. Awesome. And then Brian, where can people find you specifically online? I am most present on Twitter. So on Twitter, it's at B-R-O-B, B-Rob. You can also find me, like I said, on, on Twitch at Brian L. Robinson. My website is brianlrobinson.com. It has all the best links for where you can find me, as well as a blog that you can check out and like read about 11D and static site generators and CSS and all sorts of good stuff. Very great. Okay, yes. Well, I am so happy that we were able to connect today. You and I found each other through the Media Developer Expert yes. program through Cloudinary. And I'm just very happy that we were able to connect and that you shared your wisdom and advice with our listeners today. So thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. I appreciate it too. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. And that's a wrap on today's episode of We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. This week, I've got an exciting giveaway happening, a $100 Amazon gift card to share with a listener. Tag me at Lolo Coding on Twitter. That's L-O-L-O-C-O-D-I-N-G and share your favorite piece of advice you heard today. And as always, be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you can find podcasts. And check us out next week for another story and lessons learned from an unconventional path to tech.